Romans chapter 9, we'll turn to first. It's not uncommon for God's elect to question their salvation and worry about eternal judgment to come. But if this sermon, and I've already preached twice from this outline, were to be studied by faith, there's much hope in the gospel for your personal assurance and your personal confidence. You first of all need to remember that those foolish Armenians who walk around saying they know they'd go to heaven if they died don't have a clue as to what they're talking about. They've never heard the doctrine of salvation. They've never believed the doctrine of salvation. And they're putting their trust in their own effort. They're putting their trust in their own decision. They're putting their trust in some momentary, usually emotional, decision that was wrung out of them at some evangelistic meeting. Nowhere in the Bible did anyone ever put their trust in eternal life based on something so fragile, something so false, and something so heretical when it comes to the Bible. You saw this morning from Psalm 15, where it said, He that doeth these things shall never be moved. And there wasn't a decision in there. There was a whole lifestyle of living in a way that pleases God. So first of all, you have to blow out the idea that as long as I could trust myself, I'd have perfect assurance. It's amazing. They're trusting themselves and they think they're assured. You know, there's really no harm in us being a little uncertain of our destiny because it forces us to want to live a holy and righteous life because that's the only way we can truly lay claim to it. But we can do a better job of it if you're filled with full assurance and thanksgiving for what God's done for you. Remember, our God wasn't surprised in Eden at all. Remember, salvation is not Him trying to get you saved. The whole earth exists and the universe exists because He had purpose to save a people. And He's not going to lose a single one of them. It's a covenant salvation from beginning to end. And the covenant only involves you as a beneficiary. I like that. You are not a testator. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that was the testator. We do believe in salvation by means. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that we were saved and redeemed by the means of the death of the testator. A will is of no force while the testator is alive. But our testator not only wrote a will, but then he laid down his life to put it into force. There isn't a chance that you can lose what your heavenly Father gave you by way of eternal inheritance through the covenant of grace. The Bible was written not to unbelievers or not to those that are not God's elect. It's written to God's elect. It's written to believers that they might read, believe, know more, know the certainty of the things that happened while Jesus was on earth, and that they might be assured of eternal life. John wrote very plainly, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. We believe that there are unconverted elect. The Bible describes them. It's a scriptural fact. It's a soteriological conclusion. That means it's an obvious and necessary conclusion of salvation. Because everyone in this room is unconverted to some degree. And there have been those in the Word of God that were unconverted to a much greater degree than we are. It's also a historical precedent in the Bible. Because we can see them, individuals, and we can see categories of men that did not believe but were saved with an everlasting salvation. Their faith was weak. Their faith was overthrown at times, as the Bible describes. Sometimes they lived carnal lives for long periods of time. 
But, remember this. The fact of God's elect, or the fact of God's unconverted elect, whether it be infants, or whether it be foolish, lazy, and carnal Christians, is of no value promising anyone eternal life. It's of no value obtaining assurance for your salvation. And it's often been abused to lead men into a lascivious use of the grace of God. There's no value in it other than to know that it's a fact of Scripture. Because every one of us are unconverted to some measure. Conversion, the Bible, and see the, the ones that don't like unconverted elect are, are just like the Arminians. They have not grown beyond Arminian salvation. That there is one event in time that makes one of God's elect and is the great evidence. And nowhere is that taught in the Bible. There is no single act of repentance that has any evidence of eternal life apart from a life and a lifestyle of living for the Lord. And so we're all short of where we ought to be. And so we're all unconverted to a degree. And we pray for yet more conversion. We want the Lord Jesus Christ to be praying for us that we would be converted like Peter was after denying his Lord. Let's come to Romans chapter 9 and be reminded as we look at our salvation that there is no fine line between the righteous and the wicked. There's no fine line between those that are saved and those that are not. And I want you to think about the words, no fine line, in respect of God's salvation, in respect of our evidence, in respect of our confidence, and in respect of God's judgment. There is no fine line. Romans chapter 9, verse 20. The Apostle Paul, for the last 19 verses, has been explaining God's election. God's choice of sinners that He would save. And to keep it short here in Romans 9, we come to verse 20 where it says, as the Apostle Paul raises an objection that might be made in verse 19, he answers it by saying, Nay but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Many will say that Romans 9 does not belong to us. Many would say that we ought not to preach Romans 9, because the election and the division that is taught in Romans 9 is about the nation of Israel. And yet, when we come to verse 24, it told us, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. This passage doesn't belong to Israel. It's not some national choice of them, because it's Gentiles that are involved. This is a passage about salvation. And it describes God as the potter, and us being the clay. And whether you like that comparison or not, it's a comparison in the Word of God, and you ought not to bark against it. We're looking for the verses here and the words that tell us 
There is no fine line in God's salvation. There are vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. A potter can take one lump of clay, and he can take some of that clay and make to himself vessels of honor, vessels of glory, and he can do it in mercy toward them. And that lump of clay is humanity that makes up all of us and all those outside this room. Then that same potter can take some of that clay and make vessels unto dishonor. Those that he's going to show his wrath and his power in, as verse 22 describes. There is a great difference between an honorable vessel and a dishonorable vessel. There is a great deal of difference between God showing mercy and God showing wrath and power. There is a great deal of difference between fitted to destruction and a four prepared to glory. What a contrast is in Romans 9, 20 through 24. There's no fine line here. The salvation is drastically different and superior over against leaving fallen mankind in their state of sin and condemnation fitted to destruction by being left in what they got themselves into and what we got ourselves into. There's a God in heaven. He has chosen those that He would save. He has chosen to save them according to His own will, to the praise and glory of His own grace. It's the only way that God gets praise and glory. The Arminian gospel of salvation gives God no glory because there's no difference on His part for those that are saved and those that are lost. Not a whit's bit of difference. He tried to save the ones that are lost as much as those that are saved. And so He gets no glory. The ones in heaven will glorify themselves for getting themselves there because the ones in hell had the same work done for them by God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all to no avail. That's a terrible doctrine. It's blasphemous. It's not taught in the Bible. God gave the Lord Jesus Christ a certain number of people to save, and He saved them with an everlasting salvation, and He'll not lose a single one of them. Romans 9, there's no fine line in Romans 9. There wasn't a line at all when you looked at the lump of clay that made up humanity But then God made a huge difference between the vessels of honor and the vessels of dishonor. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 16 with me. Luke 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19, is the Lord Jesus Christ telling us about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man fared sumptuously every day. Lazarus was laid at his gate and begged crumbs from that rich man's table. Lazarus was one of God's elect, and when he died, he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. He went straight to heaven. Even though he was a beggar that was so poor, he begged for crumbs, and the dogs came and licked his sores. He was one of God's elect. The rich man that fared sumptuously every day and wore fine clothing, he died also, and he lifted up his eyes in hell, the Bible tells us. He was so tormented in hell that he asked Abraham to send Lazarus with one tip of his finger dipped in water to cool his parched tongue. The Lord Jesus Christ knew how to use strong language to describe the torments of hell. But we come down to verse 27 and let's listen to what the rich man has to say. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. 
Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. What I want to use this passage for is to tell you that there is a there is no fine line between how men respond to the gospel. This rich man in hell had five brothers that he did not want to come to hell. He asked Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to convince them to repent. Abraham said, they've got preaching every Sabbath day in the synagogue. Let them hear Moses and the prophets being preached. The rich man knew that though they had a religious exterior, though they went to church, they just sat there and warmed a pew. Their minds were in other places. The Word of God had no effect in their lives. And so he said, no, Father Abraham, they need someone coming back from the dead to get their attention. And Father Abraham said, it wouldn't make any difference if we sent someone back from the dead. If they won't hear the law and the prophets, they're not going to hear, though someone comes back from the dead. Now I want to ask you this evening, those of you that are quaking and wondering about your salvation, does it take someone coming back from the dead to convince you that the Word of God is true, to convict your heart by the Word of God, and cause you to repent of your sins and want to pursue righteousness? Does it take someone coming back from the dead? Or does it take the boring preaching by a man with no eloquence from the Word of God that that's enough for you to believe and to be moved and convicted that there's a God in heaven that you ought to obey? Why is that true about you except God has regenerated you and you have a new heart, a new spirit, and a new nature that loves those things? If you don't have that spirit, it wouldn't matter if a man did come back from the dead. There is no evangelistic tool used by any man at any time. There is nothing you can do for their flesh. There is no, there is no funeral dirge that you can play on an organ. You couldn't bring back a man from the dead to ever convert one soul by the power of man. It's entirely dependent upon the grace of God giving us a new heart in regeneration before we ever hear the gospel. It's only then that we respond to it. And if you have heard the preaching of the gospel and you've heard it with, with great feelings of guilt about your sins, great feelings of thankfulness to God for sending Jesus Christ, with conviction in your heart to want to live for Him. You've repented of your sins. You've confessed them to God and you've obeyed. It's because God has already made a difference in your life and there's no fine line. It's a great gulf that is between the righteous and the wicked. And that ability is given by God Himself. And so, if you have heard the preaching of the Gospel and you love it when you hear it, if you see in it the power and the wisdom of God, it's because God has already saved you, and you are one of His elect. Turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. There are those that fear and worry about the sins they've committed. That how can I be one of God's elect with the sins I've committed? Thank the Lord that He wrote the Bible about real elect saints. They were sinners. The best of them were sinners. The best in the Old Testament. David was a sinner. One of the best in the New Testament. Simon Bar-Jonah that we read, I read a couple of verses about earlier. A great sinner, but both elect. Look at Psalm 89. I want you to remember this. 
God made a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 28 of Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is one of the messianic psalms in that it talks and speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 28, it says, My mercy will I keep for Him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with Him. Oh, if He made a covenant with you, how long would it last? He made a covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ and it will stand fast with Him because He will always perform the conditions of it for you and for me. Verse 29, His seed also will I make to endure forever. Wow. You know, who you, you know where you are in that verse, don't you? You're not the His. You're the seed. His seed also will I make to endure forever. And His throne is the days of heaven. If His children forsake My law... And walk not in my judgments. If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and His throne as the sun before me. And this is a wonderful passage of Scripture where the blessed God promises by covenant design to save everyone that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even when they disobey and break His commandments and His statutes, He will chasten them with the loving rod of a father, but He will not take away His covenant promises to them. What a difference that is. Yes, He will bring hardship into our lives to drive us back into the way of righteousness, but it's done by the hand of a loving Father. And the covenant of grace is not lifted. I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 3 with me. We read it this morning. 1 Kings chapter 3. There was in our Lord's answer to Solomon's prayer that has something good for us in relieving us by thinking that our sins have separated us from God to where we cannot be saved. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 14, the Lord is answering Solomon for Solomon's excellent answer to his offer. The Lord said, ask what I shall give thee. Solomon said, give me wisdom to be a great king. The Lord said, I'll give you that wisdom and I'll also give you these things. And so we come to verse 14. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. There ought to be some comfort in that verse for you. Because God, after David had died, looking back on David's life, he holds up David's life as the example for Solomon to live. And we know that David sinned. We know he committed aggravated adultery and murder. We know that he moved the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way. We know he was not a good father. We know he numbered Israel and cost 70,000 lives. We know that about him. And look at what God says. If you can live as well as your father did, I'll give you a long life. There's comfort in that verse, brethren. There's a lot of comfort in that verse. You say, well, how could David get away with so many sins and such great sins? I'll tell you how. When God showed him that those 70,000 men were dying, 
And he saw the angel of the Lord standing over Jerusalem on Mount Moriah with a drawn sword. What did David do? Did he turn away like Pharaoh of Egypt at the, at the ruin of his nation and the death of many men? Did he turn away like Pharaoh and harden his heart? No, David ran to the spot where the angel was and asked to buy that piece of property on the spot. Arana the Jebusite was there who behaved himself like a king that day and said, Sir, I'll give you everything you need for a sacrifice. And David said, I will never offer to the Lord an offering that doesn't cost me. Now sell me this property at its fair market price. Sell me your oxen for the sacrifice. Sell me your threshing equipment for the wood for the fire. Because I'm going to offer a sacrifice to God and repent. And he did. When Nathan came to him and said, Thou art the man. I have sinned against the Lord. And he repented. And he turned back into the way of righteousness and sought the Lord with his whole heart. That's how you can sin like David and have your character listed in the Bible over and over again as exemplary character, exemplary conduct, because you repent of your wickedness and turn back into the way of righteousness. Do you remember from two weeks ago when I said, from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, Paul told Timothy, even when you do the best you can as a minister, unless God, peradventure, gives repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that a person can recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, they are hopelessly lost. If you have ever repented for great sins like David did, it is proof that the Lord Jesus Christ has given you repentance to the acknowledging of the truth that you could be delivered from opposing yourself, from living foolishly, from living wickedly. That is the evidence of the grace of God in your life. You are one of God's elect, or He would have never granted you repentance to recover you out of that state. Do you know how many there are that go and commit the sins that you sinned, that you're worried about right now in your own soul and conscience, as I describe it, that never come back? Do you know that there are countless millions that never come back? They live in it and they die in it. They wallow in it and they never change from it. If God granted you repentance, it was a sign of His great mercy to you. Take comfort in that fact. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I've just shown you that there's no fine line in salvation. There's a great difference between vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. There's a great difference between hearing the Word of God and responding to it and seeing a man come back from the dead and not responding to it. That's a huge difference. There's a great difference between David sinning, though heinously, yet repenting of it and seeking the Lord with his whole heart. Now we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I read this in verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. When the gospel is preached to you, do you think it's a bunch of foolishness? No. You wouldn't be here. There may be a few in here that think it's foolishness, and they'll answer to God for that. But when you hear the gospel preached, is it foolishness to you? Or do you love it? Do you understand it? Do you receive it? I love that. That is so wonderful. That is great. God is good. Praise the name of the Lord for all that He's done. 
what makes those thoughts go through you is you're a spiritual man and you're discerning spiritual things because without that spiritual heart, you would sit here and leave and you wouldn't come back. And if you sat here and stayed, you'd never have any joy in it. You have that joy because you are already made spiritual by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. What I'm trying to give you now are just a few Bible examples of there's no fine line in the evidence of a child of God. There's a distinct difference in how they approach life, in how they respond to the gospel, in what they think about sin around them. Let's look at the life of Lot for just a moment. Lot was one of those unconverted elect. I hope you don't want to call them converted If you're going to call him converted, what did he do? Go forward some night when he was with Abraham in a tent meeting? That man wasn't converted. He didn't have the fear of God that he should have had. However, he still had the seed of God within him because he was a born-again righteous man. Look at the problems he got into for living in the city of Sodom. And here's how you can tell if you're one of God's elect or not. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Speaking of the Lord God who turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes... It says that he delivered just Lot. Now the word just there, does that word just mean the only person that God saved in the city of Sodom was Lot and no others? Or does the word just there mean he delivered justified Lot? He delivered justified Lot. Lot was a justified man, as we're going to be able to find out by reading further. And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked... For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. See, Lot had a righteous soul. Lot was a justified man. Lot was a born-again man. Lot had a new nature within him. And that new nature grieved and was vexed over the sins of the city of Sodom. But the man was too weak to move, as a carnal Christian is. He didn't have the conviction to move. He didn't have the level of the fear of God to move, but he still had within him that new man, that seed that remained within him from 1 John chapter 3 that was vexed daily with the conversation of the wicked. He didn't train his children. He didn't teach his wife. He loved the city too much. He had a horrible set of priorities in his life, but he hated what he heard and saw. Now, when you see and you hear wickedness, does it grieve you at your soul? Does it bother you that men believe in evolution in our country instead of creation? When you see the breakup of homes and marriages, drunkenness, drugs, dysfunctional families, does it tear you up knowing that men are going against the Word of God and reaping the consequences of it? Why does it tear you up? It's because you have a soul that God has given you that is just and righteous, just like Lot's. Lot was vexed. He was vexed terribly. It says he was vexed from hearing them. And his soul was vexed day to day with their unlawful deeds. What makes you care about their unlawful deeds? But a heart that's in you that is created in righteousness and true holiness. And even though its voice may not have been as strong in Lot as it was in Abraham, it still bothered Lot. Now I'm not suggesting nor do I want any lots in this assembly. I am not suggesting that at all. But I'm asking you, when you hear the Word of God, when you see wickedness, 
Does it bother you? Do you get angry about it? It bothered Lot. We don't want to be like Lot. We want to be like Abraham. Who do you think had more assurance of salvation? Abraham or Lot? The Bible tells us that by faith Abraham went out into a country not knowing whither he went because he was looking for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker was God. Abraham was looking for heaven. Lot was looking for heaven on earth. And that's what got him into trouble. One man knew he had salvation and Lot was a mess. We don't even know what was going through his poor mind when he finally sat in a cave staring off into space with his life entirely ruined and his two daughters pregnant behind him. What a mess. I'm not giving him as an example except a man that's born again can know that he's born again by the grief that goes on in his soul because the Word of God's being violated. Not because one political party is winning and another isn't. God doesn't care about either political party. What God cares about is the righteousness of His law and do you care about it? If you care about it, it's because God put that care within you. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2. Most of the chapter is dedicated to a prophecy of the popes of the Roman Catholic Church known as the man of sin in this context. He's called the man of sin in verse 3. He's described as sitting in the temple of God and making himself to be above God in verse 4. And it goes on down to describe the character and the judgment of those that are in that church. And it says of them in verse 9, Even him, that's speaking of the popes of Rome that were not yet in power, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that is one severe and harsh judgment pronounced by the Word of God upon the members of the Roman Catholic Church. That language is not mine, that is the language of the Lord Jesus Christ, given to the Apostle Paul, who wrote it to the church of the Thessalonians. That is very strong language and condemning language. But look at the character of those people. They had no love of the truth. They were entirely subject to the deceivableness of unrighteousness of the man of sin. And so God sent them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now that, now listen, this is a category of religious people who are totally subject to the ridiculous lies of the Roman Catholic Church and the abominations that that mother church spawned. These are people totally subject to them, cannot be delivered. You cannot present anything to move most Roman Catholics. They are totally blind and stopped up because God has sent them strong delusion to believe a lie. Does he have a few people in the Roman Catholic Church? Absolutely. On what basis do we know that? Revelation 18.4, where speaking of that whorish church, Jesus Christ said, Come out of her, my people. He had some people in her. And he has some people in her daughters. And he says, Come out of her. But look at this category. 
They hated the truth. They were totally deluded, totally deceived into all sorts of unrighteousness by this wicked church because they could not see the truth because God totally blinded them. Then we come to verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks all way to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that huge gulf between verse 12 and verse 13. It's enormous. Are you wandering around with a string of beads praying to Mary today? Are you wanting to take a pilgrimage to Europe so that you can go to a cathedral that's got a bottle of Mary's milk? Listen, and I'm I'm just saying the good things. The ones that are close to the truth. That church is sick. She is the mother of, of harlots and abominations of the earth. And God stops up human minds so that they believe all that stuff. And she's got a bunch of harlot daughters, including these tele-evangelists that take the money out of people's pockets for their sham healings. Why don't you believe all that? Why haven't you fallen for that? Paul told you why. Because God chose you from the beginning to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And whereunto He called you by our Gospel. When the Gospel came along, you believed it. You said that's the truth, even though there's only a few that believe it. And though the Catholics say they're the original church, that Peter was the first Pope, that they gave us the Bible, that they're the universal church, you said, fooey on that! I want the truth of the Gospel. What caused you to do that? The grace of God. Because I'll tell you, numerically and statistically, which I was trained in, say that we should be over there with that church. There's 1.1 billion Catholics, and there's a whole lot of Orthodox, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Anglicans, Methodists, Lutherans, and others that copy their mother church. And here we are, a little group of Baptists, and there's other churches like us throughout the earth who were delivered from that bondage and delusion that God sent on those people. And it's proof that you have eternal life. So what did Paul say? We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Don't you know that you're beloved of the Lord? You no longer believe in baptismal regeneration, sister? You no longer believe that. God had mercy on you. There's a whole lot of people that believe it. You Catholics that have been converted, you no longer believe in transubstantiation. That that little cracker God turned into God, body, blood, soul, and divinity. You know, I had to have a, I had to have a little debate by email with our brother Singh because he thought that I had said something incorrectly when I said that Catholics believe that the cracker is the blood and the blood is the body. He wrote back and corrected me. So I had to send him the canons of the Council of Trent to show him. I said, brother, these people are so messed up that when they take the cracker, they believe they're taking the blood. And when they drink the wine, they believe they're taking the body. Now, is that messed up? Did Jesus kind of make that plain? That when he tore the bread, that was to represent his torn body. And when he poured the cup, that was to represent his blood. They reverse it and they do it this way. They say either species, bread or wine, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity in either one of them. That's why for 2,000 years, Catholics could not have the wine. They only got the cracker because the cracker is the body 
and the blood and the soul and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Now that's delusion. That's delusionary. It's insane. But if you try to present the Word of God to those people, they have no regard for the Word of God. Instead, they'll trust their fathers that have never agreed on anything and who spent their lives corrupting the Word of God. Now, why don't you believe it? All the numbers are over there. Statistically, by the law and science of probabilities, you ought to be a Roman Catholic and so should I. Are we any better naturally than they are? No. Do we have any higher intelligence than they? Oh, no, there are trained Jesuits that have very high intelligence, but they see nothing at all of the truth of the gospel. Nothing at all. And God made that difference. I want to tell you tonight, if you fear God and believe the Bible, trust the New Testament and look nowhere else, but believe everything that is written on these pages, it is because God chose you from the beginning to that great blessing. I want you to look at that verse and love that verse where it says, we are bound. Why are we bound? Because this is one incredibly great blessing. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. If you fear the Lord and love the Bible, believe the Bible, trust its gospel, and see through the lies of the Roman Catholic Church and her daughters, it's because you are beloved of God. God opens your eyes to see it or you would not see it. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. God the Holy Spirit, by the power of regeneration, sanctified you and gave you a new holy nature by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And then you believe the truth because of that. I want you never to forget the order of how it takes place. God sanctifies you and makes you a holy object by giving you a holy new nature. Then you believe the truth and you're called to obey it by the preaching of the gospel. And then the apostle goes on in verse 7, verse 15 to say, Therefore, brethren, stand fast. You know, we haven't changed, have we? We're standing fast. We're not going to change our communion that's a metaphor, that's a picture, that's a figure, into transubstantiation. I hope none of you want to do that. No, we don't want to do that. We want to stand fast. Because God made the difference. You need to go meet a few Catholics and understand the difference. It's, you know, we've got, we've got friends in this church. There is nothing that you can present. If God doesn't peradventure grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, they will continue to oppose themselves because their gospel is so contradictory even to human reason. You can take that little cracker after a priest has got done saying hocus pocus over it. You can analyze it by any technique you want to analyze it. It's still a cracker. But they tell their people the cracker has entirely, altogether disappeared. It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. It's called transubstantiation because the substance of the cracker has been altogether transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of God. Now, what makes a man oppose himself that much? The blindness that God poured down over him when he sent them strong delusion. And it's true with all false religion. You've been saved from that because God has opened your eyes and open eyes to see the truth of the New Testament and to love it and to receive it and not to count it a thing foolish, but to believe it is proof that you're God's elect. And we're bound to give thanks for each other and for what God has done for each of us. One more. Galatians chapter 3. One more. 
I've got 30 more circled. The evidence. I love Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes. If you had not opened our eyes, we'd be blinder than any man. We'd be in there kneeling, fingering our beads as fast as anyone at the feet of Mary. We'd be saying, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of God, save us children. Galatians chapter 3. All the blessings of heaven in Christ Jesus were promised to Abraham when the gospel was preached to him a long time ago. And it says in verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Galatians 3.16 The promise of heaven was given to Abraham. The promise of heaven was given to Abraham and his seed. The promise of Abraham was not given to Abraham and his seeds. It's a singular noun. It's not a plural noun. And so when you go back to the book of Genesis and you run the life of Abraham from chapter 12 to chapter 24, you only find the promises made to Abraham and his seed, singular, in a King James Bible. Now, if you're losing something ridiculous like a new King James Bible, you go back to the Old Testament and you find the word descendants, which is God telling you this book is a counterfeit from hell. Because why would Paul in the New Testament say you better find the word seed in every occurrence of a promise to Abraham in the book of Genesis, and then when you turn back there, you find the word descendants, plural. Is that God giving you a little hint that this Bible is no Bible at all? Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. I want those promises, and Abraham is not my father. Do you want those promises of heaven? And all the spiritual blessings that were preached to Abraham, justification to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that all nations of the earth should be blessed in Abraham and his seed. Do you know that you're in one of the other nations of the earth? Well, now how do we lay hold of that and know that it's ours? We come to the last part of the chapter is what we do. Verse 26, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. These verses say the same thing as Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. A man that believes and is baptized sincerely, calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and living a life showing that his faith is true and real, shall be saved with an everlasting salvation because heaven is his, because he's shown himself to be Abraham's seed. Because if you're Christ, and you become Christ by exercising and trusting in him, that's how you lay hold of it. If you be Christ, and if you've been baptized in his name, if you've put on Christ, now you know this is the practical phase of our salvation. If you've put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've done it sincerely, then you know that you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise of a city which hath foundations, 
whose builder and maker is God, was given to Abraham through the Spirit, through Christ. And if we're Christ, then those promises are ours. There's, a, there's no fine line here. Abraham had more than one son. And God set them aside. And He poured out His blessings on Jews and Greeks, bond and free, male and female. And the evidence of that is those that put on Christ. How do you know you're Abraham? Just think what the Apostle Paul was doing with Galatians. He was writing to Gentiles, explaining to them that they were Abraham's children. Do you know how he was able to accomplish that? If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's child. You're, you're the seed because you're in Christ who is the seed. And how do you lay claim to that? How do you, how do you lay hold of being Christ? You believe on Him and you're baptized in His name. And so you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's no fine line, brethren. God has saved us with a great salvation. And it's not close like this. And oh, there's so many verses I want to get to. You know, there's a verse that says that the righteous scarcely be saved. Oh, the righteous are not scarcely saved. When the Bible says that the righteous be scarcely saved, it's over in 1 Peter chapter 4. And it's talking about God bringing judgment upon the church and the afflictions and the trials and the persecutions that those saints were going to endure. But I want to tell you that they are not scarcely saved because the difference between the righteous and the wicked is enormous. And it's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no fine line. May the Lord bless us to consider this further at a future date. And may He cause each of you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and know that you, because you're Christ, are Abraham's seed. Because you're Abraham's seed and you believe the Gospel like Abraham believed it, you have been saved from the beginning through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And we are bound to thank God always for that great salvation. Bound always to thank God. Not a teacher, not a preacher, to thank God who from the beginning chose us to that salvation. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.